you would, open your Bibles to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Uh, I'll give you a fair warning this evening. Uh, last week, I didn't have a ton of scripture in my sermon. This week, you get the fire hose. <laughs> so, uh, John chapter 17, starting in verse 14. It says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come before you, Father. Uh, we thank you for this time that we have together as your people, God, to worship. Uh, we thank you for the time that we could spend together uh, in confession of sin, Father, in singing praise, in reading your word, and in hearing your word preached. God, I pray now that as I speak what you have laid on my heart, what you have helped me helped me to prepare, God, I pray uh, that you would make it sure. Father, I pray that you would uh, help your people to hear your word. God, that you would get me out of the way. Father, that you would speak through me your words, not mine. God, I pray that we would be taught by your scriptures. Father, you are worthy of all honor, glory, and praise. And we thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity. And pray that you would help us, God, to be sanctified. Help us to be more conformed to the image of Christ. Help us to see your word as we ought to see your word. Lord, thank you. Amen. <clears throat> Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As we officially begin our study of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, I want to remind us all of exactly how we are using this document. We are using the confession to study some of the most important theological doctrines of the Bible. The confession itself is not authoritative in the same way that the scriptures are authoritative. The confession begins with the very basis upon which it is written, the Holy Scriptures. For our study tonight, I think it will be helpful to divide the first section of the confession into three separate parts. The first having to do with the sufficiency and infallibility of Scripture in regards to saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Uh, in the second, we'll discuss what creation itself is able to show us as it pertains to the knowledge that is necessary for anyone to be saved. And the third concerns the means by which God has determined to reveal himself to us in a way that is most helpful and lasting for us as believers. Then last, of course, I want to make two or three practical points for our lives, given what the Bible says about all of these things. So first, the sufficiency and infallibility of Scripture in regards to saving knowledge, faith, 
and obedience. Chapter 1, section 1 of the 1689 begins to tell us what our view of Scripture should be. And surprise, surprise, what it has to say is according to the Scriptures themselves. It states, The Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. So that's what the confession says. When we talk about the Bible being the only sufficient standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience, what we are in essence saying is that only the Bible can impart to us knowledge that is able to save and sanctify us. It's not the light of nature, which the confession addresses in the very next sentence. It is not the words or wisdom of men. It is not our intellect. It is not our ability to reason. It is not science. It is no other source. The scriptures alone give us the knowledge that is able to save us. The scriptures alone tell us how we may obey God. To break this down just a bit more, we need to see that one, the word of God is able to impart life. 1 Peter 1 verse 23 says, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. Two, the Scriptures alone reveal what we hear, that by faith we believe. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. And three, only the Word of God tells us How to be obedient. Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Truth is important. We read just a moment ago when I began part of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. So let's turn there for a few minutes and consider what he is asking of the Father. So first, in verse 14, Jesus tells, us the fa- uh, tells the Father, I have given them your word. Several times throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus testifies to the fact that the word he speaks to the people is only what he has heard from the Father. John 8, verse 38 says, I speak the things which I have seen with my Father. John 15, verse 15 says, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And the same is, of course, recorded in verse 14 in the passage before us. He continues, And the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. If we look back to chapter 8, when Jesus says he is telling the Jews what he has seen with the Father, he next tells them that the reason they are seeking to kill him is because they do the things that they've heard from their father, who by implication is the devil. He goes on to explain that the reason they don't understand the things he says to them is because they cannot hear his words. Jesus' disciples 
who he is praying for in John 17, are hated by the world because he has spoken the word of God to them, and they have believed. Whereas those who do not believe cannot hear the word of God, and therefore cannot believe. Jesus identifies himself with his followers as not being of this world, because what separates them from the world is the word of God rightly understood and believed. Verse 15 in John 17. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Who was it that distorted the word of God from the very beginning? It was Satan, the devil, that ancient serpent. His crime over and over again is the distorting of the word of God to tempt the children of God to sin. When he came to Eve, he said, Hath God really said? When he tempted Christ in the desert, he misused the scriptures to try and draw Jesus into abandoning the mission for which God sent him into the world. One of the greatest dangers that the people of God face is the distortion of the word of God in tempting us to sin. Jesus knows that the word gives life, and he testifies that the devil wants to take that life. In Luke chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, we see Jesus beginning to explain the parable of the sower. And he says, Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says, The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. One of the ways that Jesus has destroyed the works of the devil is by giving us the word of God. Jesus, in fact, excuse me, John, in fact, calls Jesus the word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus prays not that we will be taken out of the world, but that we will be protected from the evil one. This is by knowledge of the Word, which is Christ, as well as the Scriptures. So, back into John 17, verses 16 and 17. They are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Truth, as I said, is important. But as Christians, we must ask ourselves, what constitutes the truth? And the answer, according to Christ, is the word of God. The word of God is the very foundation for how we can know anything at all. Colossians 2 verses 2 and 3 say that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And what is it that tells us about Christ? The scriptures, the Bible, the word of God. The scriptures are not only the only sufficient standard to tell us how we must be saved. They are also infallible, which means they are incapable of error and altogether trustworthy. Here I want to just walk through 
numerous verses beginning in the Psalms and going through the New Testament that point out the nature of God's word as being perfect, powerful, and without error. So I'll try to, I'll try to be a little slower with these, especially if you're writing things down. Uh, but I have them all printed here on the page. And so it makes it easier for me just to kind of boom, 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 hit every single one of them in a line here. Uh, and there's a good many of them. Uh, Psalm 12, verse 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth refined seven times. Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Psalm 33, verse 4. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. Psalm 119, verse 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will reprove you, and you will be proved a liar. Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Matthew chapter 22, verse 29. You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. Romans 9, 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Hebrews four twelve, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing us as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is true also because God is unable to lie. That's Hebrews 6.18. Scripture cannot be broken. John 10.35 And 1 Peter 1 verses 20 and 21 says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The Bible itself, as we see, testifies that God's Word is true that it is powerful, that it is trustworthy, and that it was written by God, who is himself truth. The scriptures also testify to their necessity in our knowledge of obedience. 
And so I want to return and consider for just a moment one of the Psalms that I quoted from just now, Psalm 119. This Psalm is one of the clearest places in the Bible that tells us about the relationship between obedience and the Word of God. Nearly every verse, if not in fact every single verse in this psalm, mentions the Word of God. The psalmist here is absolutely in awe of the Scriptures. To him, they are a way to be blameless, a way to walk in righteousness, a way to avoid shame, a way for, young man, for a young man to keep his way pure, a treasure, a source of rejoicing and delight, a way to have life from God, a source that produces longing in his heart, a way of rebuke against those who wander from God, a source of meditation, a source of strength, a way to avoid dishonest gain, something to trust, a source of liberty, a comfort, a means to be revived, a reason to give praise, and on and on and on. Also in considering the Bible's testimony of, it, of itself in being the only sufficient standard for our knowledge of obedience to God, it seems right to point out that every single one of the apostles and their ministries during the first century believed that the knowledge of how to obey God as the church came from Scripture. Over and over again in Acts, we see the apostles emphasizing the Word of God above all else. So let's walk together through Acts and look at most of the verses that show this. So, if you've got your Bible, turn with me to Acts 4, and we'll read in verse 31. <clears throat> so, Acts 4.31, it says, And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak what? The word of God with boldness. Turn to Acts chapter 6. We'll read in verse 2. It says, It is not desirable for us to neglect what? The word of God in order to serve tables. And just a couple verses below, verse 7. The word of God kept on spreading. Turn to Acts chapter 8. We'll start reading in verse 14. It says, Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Turn to Acts chapter 11, verse 1. Now, the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received, what? The word of God. Chapter 13, starting in verse 5, says, When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. Just a few verses down, verse 17 this man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Acts 13, verse 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly 
and said it was necessary that what? The word of God be spoken to you first. And since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And then turn with me to chapter 17, verse 13. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then finally, chapter 18, verse 11. And he settled there six months, teaching what? The word of God among them. So, the apostles considered the ministry of the word of God to be their primary obligation. In Colossians 1.25, Paul says, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. And in Colossians 3.16, Paul admonishes the Colossians and us to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. He also closes the letter asking the Colossians in chapter 4, verse 3, to pray at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned. The apostles quite obviously, according to these passages and verses, gave preeminent authority to the scriptures in what and how they taught. They saw the word of God as absolutely necessary in faithfully fulfilling their ministries. We see this throughout the Old Testament as well. Every aspect of life and obedience for Old Testament Israel was ordered and regulated by Scripture. How they worshipped, how they interacted with one another, how they raised their families was all based upon the word that they received from God. And I'll forego reading the many passages in the Old Testament that lay out the case, that lay out my case for the sake of time, because we could literally look at these all night. Suffice it to say for now that our knowledge of how to be saved and how to obey God comes from the scriptures. So, my second point, right? Where, excuse me, what does creation show us as it pertains to knowledge that is necessary for salvation? So the previous passages and verses give us reason to believe the confession when it says that Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard for all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. And the confession continues on to say, the light of nature and the works of creation and providence so clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, and power of God that people are left without excuse. However, these demonstrations are not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and His will that is necessary for salvation. So my point here is what does creation reveal to us about God and is what it reveals and is what it reveals sufficient to save anyone? Psalm chapter 19 verses 1 through 6 say The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, 
nor are their words, their voices not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the earth. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. So David here testifies that the creation itself tells of the glory and majesty of God. That his handiwork makes his power and goodness known. We too are able to see as David did when we look at a sunrise or a sunset. And we experience the world in day and night with the light of the sun or the light of the moon and stars. And be utterly awestruck by what God has made. And to know that his hand must have made it. We see this also in Psalm 8. Verses 1 through 4, where it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man? that you take thought of him, and the son of man, that you care for him. And then if you turn with me to Psalm chapter 50, starting in verse 1, David gives a slightly different perspective. He tells us, The mighty one, God, the Lord, has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. May our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before him, and it is very tempestuous around him. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. Gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice, and the heavens declare his righteousness. For God himself is judge. He tells us that creation is called to judge God's people. To pour out fire against the disobedient and unbelieving. The earth and heavens move swiftly to obey their God and to pour out their terrors and judgment upon any whom the Lord would direct them against. And I believe it was in considering passages like this from the Old Testament that the Apostle Paul wrote, these important words in his letter to the Romans. So, Romans chapter 1. I would assume we're all fairly familiar with this one in this room. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So this passage is foundational for our understanding of biblical anthropology, which is our understanding of man from a biblical perspective. When we look at the unbelieving world as Christians, we can often find ourselves asking why on earth people are so hell-bent against God. We hear apologists describing the human eye and the cosmos, and we give a hearty agreement to the idea that this creation more than obviously arose because of a creator. It is so evident to us that it's hard for us to comprehend a person who would look at the same creation and reason that it had to have come from nothing. That nothing gives rise to something. And so here we are. But in considering this, we fail to understand what the Bible teaches about the state of man's heart when he is unregenerate. The heart of man, according to Scripture, is a slave to sin and unable to please God. According to Scripture, man is morally incapable of submitting himself to God in the same way that Joseph's brothers in Genesis were morally unable to speak a kind word to Joseph. Romans 1 tells us that the creation reveals enough about God that men are without excuse for not honoring him or giving him thanks. It tells us that creation reveals enough knowledge of God to condemn a man's soul to hell, but not enough to save him from it. Again, we return to Romans 10, verse 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. Just a few verses above above this, Paul says in verses 13 and 14, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they then call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? The word of God, the word of God has to come to the unbeliever through a faithful preacher. And by this, I don't mean exclusively a pastor or an elder, but simply someone who will deliver the truth of Scripture honestly. And God must grant this unbeliever faith in his word, and only then can he be saved. It is the Scripture alone that teaches us that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So our third section, my third point in the confession here, concerning the means by which God has determined to reveal himself in a way that is most helpful and lasting for us as believers. Section one of chapter one in the confession finishes this way. Therefore, the Lord was pleased at different times and in various ways, to reveal himself and to declare his will to his church, to preserve and propagate the truth better and to establish and comfort the church with greater certainty against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and the world, 
the Lord put this revelation completely in writing. Therefore, the Holy Scriptures are absolutely necessary because God's former ways of revealing His will to His people have now ceased. So Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 tell us, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, and in many portions and many ways, and these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. This text actually packs quite a bit into very few words. God spoke to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. This brings to my mind Ezekiel. Ezekiel is one of the prophets that I hold as most peculiar in how God used him and spoke through him. Ezekiel was personally given a vision of the cherubim who had eyes all over and many wings as well as the wheels within wheels. He saw things by the power of God that would terrify almost anyone, myself most assuredly included. He was told by God to lie on his side for over a year and to build model siege works representing the destruction of Jerusalem. He had to eat bread that was cooked over dung. He had to pack his bags and exit the city through a hole he dug in the wall in broad daylight as a representation of the coming exile. Surely his calling was somewhat unique compared to many others, and he was told to proclaim the things he was shown in the streets for all to hear and see. God spoke to Balaam through a donkey. He spoke to Job in a storm. He gave visions and revelations to his servants, the prophets, and told them to preach to the rebellious Israelites. But even through the prophets, he pointed to another, more final way that he would reveal himself. And so what I want us to see in the next verses is that God had in mind a better way, a more perfect way. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 33, is where we see the terms of the new covenant being spoken of. And it says, Behold, Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God was pointing to a better way, a way by the Holy Spirit, a way by faith alone. So now, as we already read in Hebrews chapter 1, he has spoken to us by his Son, who is the heir of all things. And what does it mean that he is the heir of all things? Matthew 28, 18 says that Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Psalm 2 says that he was to inherit the nations and that he would break them with a rod of iron. 
What this amounts to is that Jesus has been given all authority over a kingdom that will grow until he returns, and we as Christians now live under his rule and reign. So the means by which we know his ways and his will have been authoritatively determined by him. How is he determined for us to know his will? Well, as I've said repeatedly tonight, by the word of God. So now we must establish how Jesus views the scriptures. And I'll do this briefly with two passages. First, Matthew 22, verse 31. Here, Jesus is being confronted by the Sadducees on the topic of the resurrection. He says, verse 31, But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Did you catch it? Have you not read what was spoken? Jesus sees the scriptures as being the very words of God which are able to teach and correct. Second, Luke 24, verse 27. And here's the account of Jesus on the road to Emmaus, which in all likelihood was the greatest Bible study to ever take place. Verse 27 says, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus, again, places the highest authority in Scripture by testifying to how they teach about Him. All of them. So I pointed out last week that the Holy Spirit plays an integral role in God's passing down of His Word and, word and the principles it contains. The Holy Spirit teaches us the mind of God. He enables us to know the truth. He enables us to recognize the truth of Scripture. The work of the regeneration of the elect of God belongs to the Holy Spirit. And so we must understand that it is by the Spirit that the Word of God is written on our hearts. And it is by the Spirit that we come to a saving knowledge of Christ and are then sanctified by the truth. He is the comforter in the King James Version of John 14.6. God has given us His Word in order that we can know Him. The Godhead works together as Father, Son, and Spirit to teach us truth. And we would, would and we would do well to pay attention. Second Peter one verse three says, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. God has given us by his word everything we need for life and godliness. He has given us an excellent means of comfort and surety by the Scriptures. Second Peter 1 verse 19 says, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And here I'll add one last verse pertaining to the surety we have in Scripture. Romans 15.4 For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. 
The Bible is our hope. The Bible is our source of knowledge because it reveals Christ to us. The Bible is our sword to fight against the enemies of God. And against the enemies of truth, which includes Satan. The Bible is our sure foundation in a world that hates God. The Bible is our light in a world that loves darkness rather than light. The Bible is the truth because it is the very word of God. And we have the spirit of God. And if we have the spirit of God dwelling in us, then we know that it is. So, finally, I want to give us some practical application of everything that I've talked about. What does it mean that we as Christians hold to the Bible above all else? What it means is that if we truly believe that only the Bible can give us the Word of God, then we won't go looking for it in some other place. And here's what I mean by that. We see all the time well-meaning people, many of which would call themselves Christians, saying something along along the lines of, well, God told me such and such. Or, God showed me this or that. Or, my favorite, God gave me a word for you, brother. When these things happen, we have a simple test. Does what they are saying agree with Scripture or not. If it does, then God has not only revealed it to them, but to all who believe and have read the Bible. If it does not, then it has absolutely zero authority to tell you anything about what God has spoken. And by saying we won't go looking for the Word of God anywhere else, I also mean that we will not be seeking after private revelation from God. And I don't mean that we won't ask God to, that we won't ask God for an answer to some prayer that we've prayed, like what to do in a job situation or a difficult choice that we have to make. What I mean is that we won't go off into thinking that God is showing us something that he has not shown to anyone else. That we won't think that if we pray a certain way or if we cast a lot that God will show us something that he has not already given us for understanding in the Bible. As the confession tells us, the Bible is the only certain infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Let's pray. Almighty God, I thank you again for your word. I thank you for the truth that you have shown us, God, that you have condescended to reveal yourself to your creation, that you have, like Christ the Son, in fact, entered into into your creation to give us your word, and to give us understanding. Lord, I pray 
that when we pick up scriptures that you have written by the Holy Spirit through your servants, that we would not just see a random collection of books or something that tells us a little bit about you and about our life with you, but rather it is the source of knowledge and understanding of who you are and of who we are before you. God, I pray that you would give us a deeper reverence for your word. I pray that you would give us a deeper love for your word. Lord, that you would convict our hearts to be studying the scriptures every day. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us more and more by your word. That you would grant us understanding, Father, and allow us to see the beauties of Christ in the scriptures. That we might love him and serve him more. God, I thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your graciousness towards your people. And I pray that you would continue to do good to us as we part ways tonight. That you continue to help us, Lord. Amen.